the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, uh, let's see, Monday, Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Uh, today we're going to talk with Amy Schwerer. She is a visiting legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about how the uh, Texas shooter was able to purchase firearms, given the fact that he was not eligible to legally do so, according to the Air Force. We're also going to talk with Dean Chang. He's a senior research fellow in Asian Studies at the Davis Center for National Security and Foreign Policy. We'll talk about the president's uh, continued trip uh, travels in Asia. And we'll talk with Rupert Darwell. He's the uh, author of Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. Really a, a great book on the subject tracing the history of the movement that really began not here in the U.S., but uh, in Sweden and Germany. It's a European movement that we've glommed onto. Anyway, we'll talk with him about that book, which, by the way, is published by Encounter. Before we get to that, however, I wanted to offer a bit of insight regarding why the church is not discouraged, not intimidated, rather, uh, when shootings like what occurred in uh, Texas occur. I mean, it's a frightening thing. It's a hor- horrific event. People lost their lives. But why the church isn't intimidated? Well, Russell Moore writing on the subject in the Washington Post, I thought, had a great deal to say, uh, saying that while millions of other Christians were singing hymns or opening their Bibles or taking communion this past Sunday, and by the way, that was the Sunday that focused on the persecuted church, at that very moment, a gunman was opening fire on First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. This, believed to be the largest church shooting in history, ended up with at least 26 people killed, according to authorities. Several children were among the fallen, including Pastor Frank Pomeroy's 14-year-old daughter, Annabelle. Whatever the shooter's twisted objective might have been, we do know this, it won't work. Well, how can he make a statement like that? He goes on. The goal the gunmen sought to terrorize worshipers has been attempted constantly over the centuries around the world by cold, rational governments, terrorist groups, all thinking that they could, by the trauma of violence, snuff out churches or at least intimidate those churches into hiding from one another. Such violent tactics always end up with the exact opposite of what the intimidators intend, a resilient church that, if anything, moves forward with even more purpose than before. Why? Whether they are crazed loners in the United States or jihadist cells in Syria or governing councils in the old Soviet bloc, these forces fundamentally misunderstand the source of Christianity's strength in the first place. Killers assume, after all, that gunfire or poison gas or mass beheadings will show Christians how powerless we are. That is true. They assume that this sense of powerlessness will rob the community of its will to be the church. But that's false. If they looked ahead in almost any of the churches they attempt to destroy, these killers might see what they miss, the cross. The church was formed against the threat of terror. Jesus himself stood before a Roman governor who told him that the state had the authority to kill him in the most horrific way possible, staking him to a crossbeam to bleed slowly to death before a jeering crowd. That, of course, exactly, that's exactly what Pilate did, and the empire's intimidation seemed to work 
At first, most of Jesus' core followers went into hiding out of fear that they would be endangered next. That's exactly what crosses were designed to do. Their public display was to warn people that they could be next in line. The very ones who scattered, though, soon returned, testifying that they had seen the crucified Jesus alive. The result was an open proclamation of the Christian message that led to thousands joining themselves to the tiny persecuted movement. Within a matter of centuries, the terrorists themselves, the Roman Empire, would be gone, with the church marching forward into the future. The reason was not that the church came to believe that they could find safety in the threats of violence. The reason was that the church came to conclude in the midst of the violence that death is not the end point. Much of the New Testament is made up of letters from the apostles of Jesus on on why the cross is Uh, counterintuitively the power of God. The Christian gospel does not cower before death. Those who give their lives and witness to Christ are not helpless victims in our view. In fact, the book of Revelations maintains that those who are martyred are in fact ruling with Christ. This is not in spite of the fact that they were killed. They triumph even as they are killed. That's because they are joined to a Christ who who has uh, been dead and never will be again. The day of the shooting was, for many churches, a day of remembrance for the persecuted church. Christians do not see as uh, victims those around the world who are rooted out of their churches, even lined up and executed. We see them... We see in them the power Jesus promised us, the power that is made perfect in weakness. To eradicate churches, our opponents will need a better strategy. They should see that Christianity can be easier suffocated with comfort to the point that we forget we are, that it can be terrorized with violence, forget who we are. Those who try to confront the church with the threat of death only remind the church that we are Uh, We are we were dead, rather, and are now alive in Christ. The days ahead will be awful for the grieving community of Sutherland Springs. But one thing is certain. Come Sunday, they will be gathered again, singing and praying and opening the word. That church will be will bear witness to the truth that shaped them. Eternal life cannot be overcome by death. And over that uh, church will be a cross. Again, Russell Moore, president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And then a quote from Gary Ledbetter, director of communications and ministry relations for the Southern Baptists in Texas uh, on the uh, Texan uh, Convention. He also expressed grief over the tragic events in an article published by the convention's new site, The Baptist Press. He writes, I try to imagine the picture of an entire congregation shot down, wounded or killed. He said, it is just too horrible. I think of the grief the entire congregation will experience for years, even decades, as a result of this day. But he stressed that death is not the end for the victims or for the rest of the world. The believers killed on November 5th were at church because they were expressing a heavenly hope that death is defeated by resurrection, he said. Jesus is the proof and the first fruits of those who would rise after him. Ledbetter also cautioned readers not to treat politics as the main source of hope for ending evil. Human political answers have the same expiration date as this world sooner, uh, sooner every minute, he said. Those who look for laws or psychology or even first responders for answers to the darkness are not looking to the source of true hope. For Ledbetter, that hope is Christ. For those of us who believe, our hope is in Christ. Implicit and very explicit in our comfort, however, he said, is that promise that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us so that where he is, we may be also. It's a place where there is no darkness, grief, or sin. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I wanted to just remind us all that he is near to the brokenhearted, that we can lean on him, that one day God will put all things to right. He will wipe away all of our tears. 
Um, and we live for that uh, that season to come when all of the promises that have been made will be ultimately fulfilled. Coming up, we're going to hear from Amy Swearer. She's a visiting legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about how the Texas shooter was able to buy a firearm when the Air Force tells us he was stripped of his right to purchase or possess firearms. There are numerous reports that indicate that a 2012 domestic assault on his then wife and stepson should have prevented him uh, from purchasing the firearms, which would have prevented the event from taking place at all. We'll talk with Amy about what the law says and what happened. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. My next guest writes for the Daily Signal on the morning of Sunday, November the 5th. A shooter, whose name I will not mention, opened fire on the congregants of First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. The attacks killed 26 people, including a pregnant woman and a number of children. A man living nearby heard the shots, grabbed his own firearm, and pursued the shooter. The shooter was found dead in his truck eight miles away from the scene, and it's not clear whether he or his pursuer fired the fatal shot. That has since been resolved. It was self-inflicted. As with every highly publicized mass casualty shooting, the news was followed by immediate calls for legislators to do something. Too soon, or rather too often, these calls are made with limited knowledge of existing gun restrictions, of constitutional jurisdiction, and uh, the facts of the shooting itself. So, what is the current state of the law regarding possession of firearms? What do we know or not know about Kelly, the shooter, and his weapon? Could this shooting have been prevented if Congress just did something above and beyond what has already been done? Well, here to talk about that is Amy Schwerer. She is a visiting legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Georgine, thank you for having me. Well, there's a lot of uh, wringing of the hands around this latest incident, and I understand that people want something to be done. But do you think, generally speaking, we have an understanding of what already is required to be done uh, prior to and uh, following cases like this one? Well, what we know based on the facts coming out of this particular shooting is that this is not an issue of not having the correct legislation already in place. Under every sort of state and federal law, uh, this individual was barred from possessing or from buying uh, or for having any contact with a firearm. Uh, So the question becomes what went wrong Mm -hmm. such that he was allowed to purchase a firearm even uh, in spite of being locked in in a military facility for 12 months for beating up his wife and child. Uh, so that that becomes the important question at this point, not what new law do we need? You make the point that the Supreme Court has affirmed that the Second Amendment right is not unlimited. It can be subjected to regulation and restriction. Um, and in this case, that restriction did apply. Let's talk about the shooter and his particular case. Uh, by all um, accounts, he should not have had uh, access to he was not free to legally possess or use a firearm. That's Correct. So under federal law, uh, 18 U.S.C. uh, 922, essentially there are nine different categories of individuals who are barred from possessing firearms. And among those are those who have been uh, convicted of a crime with a punishment, uh, with a possible punishment of more than one year, which in in this case, uh, the shooter had been convicted in a military court of a crime that had a maximum penalty of two years. Um, So even alone under that category, he should be barred from firearm possession. 
Uh, now, within that set of categories, there is also another uh, firearms disability for those who have been conv convicted of a domestic violence crime, again, in any jurisdiction, state, federal, military. Uh, and, and so under both of those uh, sets of circumstances, uh, the shooter did not have a Second Amendment right to possess a firearm. Now, we know that the uh, the Air Force in reviewing um, their uh, their policy and how it applied to this particular case, uh, that somehow the information that would have restricted his access to firearms did not make it into the database where it should have uh, been. Uh, and the Department of Defense is broadening that investigation to look into other instances in which uh, information is not appropriately transferred in the state of Texas. Um, Oh, can a, an individual have their restriction uh, for firearms revoked under certain circumstances? And how does that work in that state or, for that matter, in other jurisdictions? Sure. So this gets a bit complicated mm -hmm. in terms of how people can or can't get their firearms rights back. Uh, what's important to, to keep in mind is that uh, this particular individual who, who committed this horrific act, he was convicted uh, in a military court under federal law. So uh, what the Supreme Court has since said is because he was convicted under federal law, only federal law can restore his right. Um, so regardless of what Texas law is, and, and, and Texas does have a, a way for individuals convicted in, in Texas under state law to have their firearms rights restored, uh, this individual was convicted under federal law. Uh, there is no, not currently a mechanism for federal convicts to have their firearms right restored. So essentially, if you've been convicted in a federal court or in a military court of one of these applicable crimes, you've permanently lost your ability to possess a firearm. Uh, so, so that right does not go away, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So in this case, there is not a circumstance. And my understanding is, according to your article, Congress hasn't even funded the mechanism to restore someone who's been charged under federal uh, statute to have their firearm access restored. Uh, but according to um, his particular case, he should not have had access uh, to firearms. He was not lawfully um, able to purchase a gun if the information had been made available to those who did the background check as they should have um, prior to this event. That's correct. So w what's really happening here is not that there was a failure of law, but there was a failure to enforce that law. Um, and unfortunately, this is something that we've had official reports about for quite a while. Uh, going back to even the late 90s, there have been reports on widespread lapses of criminal history reporting from the, the different military branches. Uh, so reporting from states is, is not uh, mandatory, but it, but it is fairly widely followed. Under Pentagon guidelines, however, the, the different military branches are required to report convictions from military court to these FBI databases. Uh, unfortunately, again, as of February 2015, uh, the DOD's inspector general has issued a report showing that compliance is not always roundly received. Uh, so, for example, uh, between 2010 and 2012, when they went back and checked, 30% of criminal convictions uh, under military courts in these respective military branches had not been reported to appropriate databases. Um, that's a large number of individuals whose, whose criminal convictions have not been reported. Uh, and unfortunately, it looks like this particular shooter fell under that category. Mm. So this is an example, and there are others, as you've made reference to, this is an example of where existing laws 
could have, should have prevented this event from taking place, assuming that we're talking about uh, weapons that are lawfully obtained in this case by the shooter. That would not have been possible if the information had rightly been made available to the database, uh, the federal database, as required. Absolutely. Uh, And this is exactly what we saw, if you recall, the Charleston Church shooting with Dylan Roof. Um, Not to to make his name popular mention again, uh, but that was an instance where he had a disqualifying offense that should have been reported to the FBI databases and which the FBI uh, failed to include in that set of databases. And so he was, uh, just like this particular individual, wrongly uh, afforded a firearm right that he should not have had. While we may disagree on a number of issues with regard to how to respond to these kinds of events, I think it's probably safe to say that we would all agree that existing laws um, must be enforced uh, in order to prevent those events that are preventable, as this and the one you mentioned uh, would have been preventable, uh, again, with with the lawfully obtained firearms. That's right. I think if there is a silver lining to all of this, it's that there is room for bipartisan agreement on this particular issue of strengthening how we enforce the laws already in place. Uh, as far as I know, there there are no conservatives or liberals or, or anybody w- within the political spectrum going around saying that those convicted of violent offenses who have repeatedly um, who have repeatedly shown themselves to be prone uh, to to violence, whether domestic violence or general violence, that those individuals should be afforded a firearm. Right? No one is going around saying that. Uh, there is widespread agreement that where there are laws in place regardless of whatever more laws we might want, the laws we have in place need to be enforced. Uh, And I think that is something, or again, if there's a silver lining coming out of this, perhaps it is a a bipartisan agreement to really look at filling in gaps in our in our reporting of these criminal convictions. Well, I was encouraged to hear that the Air Force and the Department of Defense are reviewing their policies to try to shore up um, uh, problems where they exist. And hopefully, Uh, We won't see, uh, at least through that system, we won't see this kind of event take place again, where clearly the individual uh, gained uh, access lawfully to firearms that he was not entitled to possess. I absolutely agree with you there. And let us all pray that this is something that never, ever happens again. Amy Schwerer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Again, Amy is a visiting legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Up next, we're going to talk with Rupert Darwell. He's the author of Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. We're going to be talking to him from, well, he's in the UK, we're here. Uh, Anyway, looking forward to that conversation, a really important book to understand the history and the context of the uh, climate industrial complex and the history of how we got to where we are today. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today, November 7th, marks the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. On that day in 1917, the Lenin-led Reds staged a coup in St. Petersburg. They seized power from the first democratically elected government in 1,000 years. This was the first time in history that the communist regime had toppled a government, but certainly not the last. But where are the celebrations of this magnificent moment, one might ask? We have... Haven't heard a word of uh, congratulations, even from the uh, nominally communist nations of China, Venezuela, 
Cuba, Sweden, Vietnam, even the Upper West Side of Manhattan. No parties on college campuses, nothing from Hollywood, even Bernie Sanders. What about that reliable bastion of leftism, the mainstream media? No um, reverential videos of Lenin and Stalin from CNN. What about glowing tributes from the New York Times? One might ask why the silence. Well, one reason I bring it up is the fact that a new study has indicated that um, uh, it was conducted, I should say, by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, revealed that some disturbing facts about what millennials think of communism and socialism. Some of the results are a little disturbing and could have big implications for the future of our republic. For instance, the poll found that about half of millennials said that they would rather live under socialism or communism than capitalism. The poll also found that nearly one in five millennials think Joseph Stalin was a hero. Millennials, according to Marion Smith, executive director for the Victims of Communism, uh, says that millennials uh, now uh, make up the largest generation in America, and we're seeing some deeply worrisome trends. Uh, Millennials are increasingly turning away from capitalism and towards socialism and even communism as a viable alternative, end quote. Well, the findings of the study should be a wake-up call to those who think that communism is no longer a threat to the United States and the West. Young people who had little personal experience with a half-century battle between Soviet tyranny and American freedom. It's a a sad indictment on a generation that grew up with more prosperity than any in human history would turn Uh, Turn on the system that brought them there. Alas, socialism appears to be the opiate of prosperous utopians. Perhaps in the decades of unchallenged international supremacy, Americans let their guard down to real threats on our way of, uh, of life. We were lulled into a false sense of security about our future and have now fallen into the trap of bringing back dangerous doctrines that we have had the good fortune to escape. Yet apologies and even wistful nostalgia for the high tide of communist revolution are being peddled in the pages of mainstream liberal outlets like the New York Times. The Times has shockingly featured a section called Red Century, which is um, all about the 100-year anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia and its aftermath. And while the section has editorials about the evils of communism, it also features numerous pieces that actually celebrate or make excuses for it. It's run a puff piece on Vladimir Lenin being an environmentalist, praised the sex life of women behind the Iron Curtain, published flattering profiles of Communist Party organizers, among numerous other absurdities. And while it's certainly reasonable to have a discussion on of communism's uh, legacy, it's uh, jarring to see so many favorable columns devoted to the primary geopolitical existential threat to the United States in the 20th century. As John O'Sullivan noted in the National Review, the whole tenor of the section uh, treats communism like a noble experiment conducted in less than ideal conditions. One has to ask, would the Times have had a similar section with a glowing piece about fascism at 100 years? Well, the answer, of course not, and for good reason. But this is part of a larger cultural normalization of a destructive creed that lay dormant but was never entirely extinguished in the last few decades. And now it's back in vogue. It's no wonder that so many millennials have a fanciful view of the ideology that took more lives than any other creed in human history that destroyed civilizations and nearly plunged the world into darkness. This is a dire warning that we need to do a better job of educating young Americans about history and the blessings of liberty that have imperfectly but ultimately flourished in this country. Perhaps we need to see school choice and the revitalization of our education system as a higher priority. 
As historian Sean McKeegan wrote in his book, The Russian Revolution, after communism's century of well-cataloged disasters, no one should have the excuse of ignorance, end quote. Today's Western socialists dreaming of a world where private property and inequality are outlawed, where rational economic development is planned by far-seeing intellectuals, should be careful what they wish for, McKeegan wrote. They just might get it. Well, what is that history? Before 1917, the communist utopia concocted by the twisted minds of a disgruntled rabbi's son from Germany named Karl Marx had the, the credibility of the unproven hypothesis. That changed abruptly on that historic November day. The Soviet insurrection that overthrew the legitimate government ushered in a wave of terror that was unprecedented. The red gangsters that ruled Russia made Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun look like amateurs in the art of carnage. In order to consolidate power over a majority of Russians who did not believe in socialism, the Leninist thugs had to murder tens of millions and incarcerate countless others in gulags. And how did their economic utopia fare? Well, not very well. For virtually the entire 20 years following the communist coup, the country was in perpetual famine. It didn't help that on the way to collectivizing agriculture, the Soviets murdered millions of productive independent um, Kulak farmers who were responsible for most of Russia's agricultural output. The massacre of their own people by the communists served as a template for future revolutions. Since 1917, communism has been tried in 37 countries worldwide and has a perfectly unblemished record of failure. By contrast, more than 2 billion people, primarily in Asia, have been lifted out of poverty by free enterprise since 1980. But will you see, ever see, in the Washington Post or on MSNBC stories about that? Well, probably not. It's far easier to whine about inequality. How, how have citizens been treated under communist rule? The landmark work, the Black Book of Communism, eloquently and comprehensively addressed this. According to editor Stefan uh, Kortras, uh, the communist regime is responsible for more deaths than any other political ideal or movement. How many? 100 million humans massacred, starved, and executed, including 65 million in China. Surely the leading Marxist murderer was Pol Pot, whose minions slaughtered the most educated and accomplished 20% of Cambodians in 1975. The killing fields represented the zenith of red genocide and should have served as an epithet for the monstrous uh, the monstrosities, rather, of Marxism for all time. But paradoxically, leftism is stronger than ever today. Throughout Western societies, the welfare state keeps expanding. Socialism dominates the colleges and permeates the media, while laissez-faire capitalism is held in low repute. No matter that after 15 years of socialism, once prosperous Venezuela is a ruined country. A century after the Bolshevik Revolution, some, like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, are rock stars. So let's all salute the communists and wish and wish them a well-deserved happy 100th anniversary, as so many will. Now, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'll do some of the numbers just to put it into perspective, and then we'll move on. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Dean Cheng. He's a senior research fellow in Asian Studies at the Asian Studies Center at the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. We're going to talk about the president's uh, travel to Asia. He's meeting with key leaders uh, today in South Korea, met with the president of uh, Japan yesterday. We'll continue with his trip 
uh, into Vietnam, the Philippines, China, and so on. We'll talk more about uh, that. We're also going to talk with Rupert Darwall, who's the author of Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. Uh, He is actually in the U.K. We had a conversation earlier today. A very fascinating book um, published by Encounter, if you're interested in uh, understanding the the history of the movement uh, that didn't begin here in the United States, but began uh, much earlier in Sweden, uh, broadened into Germany. And uh, we're going to talk about the uh, industrial complex that resulted. So that's coming up uh, later in the five o'clock hour. Also, I want to let you know that you are invited to join my friends, Deborah Greenidge, Jerutha Greenidge and me for... Um, concert and conference trust the journey from fear to faith there's a concert on friday night the 17th at 7 30 p.m in which we're going to um, navigate the the challenge of being men and women of faith who uh, turn away from fear in in order to demonstrate our trust in the lord and then on saturday november the 18th from 9 a.m to 3 p.m there's a women's conference that's going to feature that very thing among the speakers barb boswell jody mayhew tris jader jeter and gloria stidham we invite you to join us it's going to be held at new song church and for more information you can go to undaunted uh, to register again undaunted we were talking about today being the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. It was a century ago today that Vladimir Lenin unleashed the uh, deadliest political system in human history on the Russian people. The world is still living with the consequence of that event. Uh, National Review's Arthur Herman reminds us that 100 years ago today, November 7th, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin overthrew the newly established Russian Republic and its provisional government with the help of uh, disaffected soldiers from the Petrograd garrison and sailors from the nearby Kronstadt Naval Base. The next day, November 8th, Lenin installed himself and his Marxist Bolshevik cronies as the new government of Russia, dubbed the Council of People's Commissars. Barely a shot uh, had been fired. The number of people killed in the Bolshevik coup in the Russian capital would hardly fill a Cadillac Escalade. But from that day until today, Lenin's legacy would be the single most lethal political system ever devised. A year after seizing power, he would change this system's name from Bolshevism to communism. And uh, as we reflect on the uh, centenary of the Bolshevik Revolution, the salient fact to remember is that it has uh, it's been 100 years um, of revolution, oppression, starvation, mass murder, genocide, terror without historical parallel. Some would say 100 years of hell. From the Soviet Union and Mao's China to uh, Mingitsu's Ethiopia, Castro's Cuba, Pol Pot's Cambodia, untold millions were shot or killed by agents of an oppressive totalitarian system aiming to, con- to totally control the elimination of class enemies or any form of or even thought of oppression. Many millions more were slowly starved to death than communist-generated mass famines that were either the result of deliberate engineering, Stalin's Great Famine in Ukraine, or spectacular mismanagement of the food supply, Mao's Great Leap Forward in modern-day North Korea. Tens of millions uh, more survived, forced to live under the thumb of a vicious and unrelenting police state in a state of perpetual psychological fear and material poverty, Um, Many still suffer today. This is not to uh, even mention those who've spent the last century fighting to keep their countries free from communism in places like Vietnam, Korea, Malaysia, Greece, Nicaragua, El Salvador and Angola and Russia itself. Nor does it account for the tens of thousands of military men and women of the free world, American uh, chief among them 
who would suffer and die in the jungles of Vietnam and on the frozen mountain slopes of Korea to halt communism's advance. And that's just the system's quantifiable human toll for nearly five decades during the Cold War. Americans and Europeans had to live in the shadow of nuclear holocaust as the leaders were forced to confront the possibility that the only way to defeat communism and the Soviet Union might be unleashing the most unimaginably destructive weapons ever created and reducing civilization to a burned out pile of ashes in which, as the saying went, the living would envy the dead. For those decades, we all had to live with the thought of the unthinkable in a tense nuclear standoff that managed to keep the Soviet Union at bay until it finally collapsed in 1992. Yet a century um Later, a review of Lenin's legacy is still not complete. Lenin's whole rationale for seizing power that day and for creating the Soviet police state over the next year was that uh, through terror and violence, he could force a new, better order to emerge. He lived by the same maxim as Karl Marx did, the quotation from um, uh, Mephistopheles of, uh, Go- of uh, Goethe's Faust, everything that exists deserves to be destroyed. Well, today, it's the de facto motto of those groups whose commitment to terror and violence is, like Lenin's was, rooted in that dark corner of the human psyche where totalitarianism merges with nihilism. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and their brethren. Lenin and his successors all declared war on civilization. That war still goes on in different places and in different ways. In the uh, Hundred Years' War of Modern Times, one uh, none of us can afford to lose. Arthur Herman, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and author of 1917, Lenin, Wilson, and the Birth of the New World Disorder, was released, uh, uh, I should say, will be released November 28th, if you'd like to read and study more on the uh, on the subject. Well, coming up in our next um, in our next segment after the uh, top of the hour, we're going to talk with Dean Chang. The president, as you know, is on a um, a whirlwind tour of Asia. He's attending uh, meetings with various heads of state. Some meetings that originally he had not uh, planned on attending, but made some last minute uh, changes to his itinerary in order to be a part of. Those strategic events. We're going to talk about what uh, this might mean. Uh, The president, for example, is going to attend the East Asian Summit, which was not originally on his uh, itinerary. It's a bilateral uh, priority of uh, both Hanoi and Manila, two of the countries he'll be um, visiting, Japan, South Korea, China, Vietnam and the Philippines. It's a great opportunity to ensure regional stability if the president gets it right. We're going to take a look at what's happened thus far. The president has been in Japan. He's also been in South Korea. And of course, North Korea is top of mind. But there are other issues uh, that are being discussed in each of these strategic uh, partners um, as well. The president will be uh, traveling to China. We've had an election in South Korea and in China that ensures the positions of both of those national leaders, which will uh, play a role in how uh, these meetings with the U.S. president will play out. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, when he joins us after the top of the hour. We're also going to talk with Rupert Darwell, who is the author of Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial uh, complex in which he doesn't just look at um, climate and, and environmental hysteria, as I would put it, uh, in the United States, but where the roots of um, much of this movement has come from and what it means to say that there is a consensus of scientists. And uh, if, in fact, that is the final word, if it if it uh, represents uh, ultimate truth. So we're going to talk with uh, Rupert Darwall about that. And by the way, he is in the UK. We had our conversation earlier today and had some difficulty reaching one another, but did finally 
have the opportunity to have a conversation on what I consider to be a very important book. It's a follow-up on uh, a book he did in 2013 that had a much narrower focus, but upon uh, having a conversation with a uh, well-informed colleague and reader of the book, uh, following his suggestion that a much broader uh, context would be important to the subject, uh, this book is the result of that. So we're going to talk about uh, green tyranny, exposing the totalitarian roots of the climate industrial complex. And we're also going to acknowledge the 99th birthday of evangelist Billy Graham, celebrating his 99th birthday today, uh, which means that he is beginning his 100th Year, We'll reflect a little bit on his life and legacy and also what he's doing today. Uh, this is a big deal for him, for his family, and certainly for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. All of that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. But first, news and traffic, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. In just a moment, we're going to talk with Dean Chang. He's senior research fellow in Asian Stud- at the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation. And later this hour, we'll talk with Rupert Darwell. He's the author of Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. Well, continuing his travels in Asia today, the president met with key leaders, including South Korea's president, to reassure the the, uh, uh, Asian countries that the United States commitment to their security uh, is intact. What kind of a trip is this and what is ultimately its purpose? Here to talk with us about that is Dean Chang, again, senior research fellow in Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. The uh, president began his uh, trip in uh, Japan. He's now in South Korea. Let's talk about Japan and how that visit went and what the president ultimately needed to accomplish there. Well, I think that uh, part of the purpose of this overall trip is to signal Asia, especially our allies like Japan and South Korea, that our commitment is firm. um, And that's very important, uh, both as a general uh, matter of principle, but also because of the threat posed by North Korea. That certainly is a major uh, issue, a, a top of mind, I'm certain, for all of these leaders that the president will be meeting with. What about his visit today in South Korea? Uh, this was an important uh, signal, again, of course, to North Korea. Um, but it also highlights that there are trade issues that the president wants to bring up. Um, they were uh, Some of those trade issues were raised in Japan. But the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has already built a pretty strong personal relationship with um, President Trump. Uh, President Moon Jae-in of South Korea hasn't had really that kind of opportunity. Uh, So I uh, think that part of today's discussions, in addition to how do we confront North Korea, has been about resolving some of the outstanding trade issues between the U.S. and South Korea. What kind of relationship does the president have with uh, Seoul's President Moon Jae-in? Well... Part of the problem here is that President Moon came to power because of a huge scandal that toppled his predecessor, uh, Madam Park. So he really came to power only over the summer. Um, so he really was not able to interact with President-elect Trump, as Abe was, or President Trump soon after he was inaugurated. So really, he's been playing catch-up. The relationship there is a little uh, also um, more delicate because Moon was elected on a platform that really was more open to uh, uh, relations with North Korea. Now, the funny thing there is that North Korea has really slapped away the hand mm-hmm. of President Moon. Um, but as a result, that really has increased some of the 
uh, tension, if you will, between the South Korean president and the American president. Now, it seems that uh, President Moon has has modified a little bit his position uh, in terms of its approach to the North. Um, but there's some question as to whether or not that's going to continue to be the case, given the fact that the North has not uh, responded favorably to their entrees. Is that an opportunity for President Trump or does that just signal that there's less certainty about the future moving forward? Uh, I'd say actually it's both. I mean, certainly President Trump and President Moon made a point today in their speeches and in the various toasts to make very clear. We stand shoulder to shoulder with the South Koreans. And that's been true since 1950. We have fought together, and we fought together not only in Korea during the Korean War, but also in Vietnam when South Korea sent troops to fight alongside ours in, in South Vietnam. Um, so I think that this is absolutely an opportunity to say we are uh, allies and we are firmly together. The question is going to be where does South Korea want to go in the longer term, uh, especially if North Korea should at some point uh, take a more um, positive approach or um, politically more expedient approach. Now, the administration expressed interest in renegotiating the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement. How is that likely to go? Well, the president is clearly somewhat skeptical about free trade. Uh, his focus, uh, whether it's with Japan, with South Korea, or even Canada and Mexico, is on the trade deficit, uh, which isn't actually necessarily a great metric. So I think that that's going to be definitely a focus is um, how to, to rejigger the uh, issue of the trade relationship. But just as NAFTA continues to be renegotiated, we haven't ended the North American mm-hmm. free Agreement. That's probably also going to be true for the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement. Now, the president is going to uh, address the National Assembly, uh, giving a speech in Seoul. Um, what does he need to do in that address? I think he needs to really bring home to the South Korean people two major points. We remain firmly committed as allies and that we are firmly committed to the region. We may have our differences on trade issues. We may have our differences on specific policies. But at the end of the day, the United States is going to be there for our allies and for the region as a whole. Now, China's um, uh, President uh, Xi Jinping uh, just emerged from a political process that strengthened his governing mandate. What is that meeting likely to uh, focus on, and what will the president attempt to accomplish in that meeting? Obviously, North Korea top of mind, but what other issues as well? Well, I think the issue of the South China Sea, where the Chinese apparently have started uh, rebuild, uh, have mm-hmm. started building even more artificial islands, will be a concern. The Chinese would love for the, uh, President Trump to say something about Taiwan along the lines that the U.S. is not going to back Taiwan, uh, which would violate uh, pretty much 40 years of U.S. policy. Um, and then there is, again, the trade issue. The Chinese would like to know that we are not going to impose tariffs on them, um, and President Trump wants to hear something about the trade deficit. But more importantly there is the issue of intellectual property. Is China really going to clean up its act um, in terms of how much cyber espionage and general um, theft of intellectual property is conducting worldwide? Now, Vietnam and the Philippines are also on the president's itinerary, a very important element of the visit. He, in fact, extended his itinerary to attend an important meeting that would uh, benefit both of those countries. Talk a little bit about the importance of and the focus of those, the meeting in those two countries. Well, 
the Southeast Asian leg is comprised of a number of major multilateral summits. Uh, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in Vietnam, the ASEAN Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and then the East Asia Summit. Um, these are major opportunities for President Trump to meet a lot of foreign leaders at the same time, again, to get the message out there that the U.S. is not walking away from the region, and also a chance for certain bilateral talks. Apparently he may have a bilateral even with Vladimir Putin uh, at uh, one of these uh, summits. But again, the big issue is going to be, are you going to be there? That's the question all of Asia is asking. Um, are you going to be there as the Chinese become more powerful, as Xi Jinping, uh, as a strong individual leader, really pushes China to the forefront? Where is the U.S. going to be? The president has moderated his tone somewhat in the early meetings of this trip. Um, how, how do you think he has done so far? And what do you think he needs to do in order for this to be deemed a success? Well, that depends on who you ask. I mean, for certain parts of the broader media, I don't think uh, Donald Trump could do anything that would make it a success. I mean, it's the old joke that if he walked on water, uh, you know, the New York Times would probably say that it proves he can't swim. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, I mean, look, when you've got, uh, you know, CNN saying, my gosh, the man's going to poison Japan's national fish because he's dumping fish food in the same way that the Japanese prime minister did, that's a no-win. But I think for the broader public, um, especially the Asian public, again, what they want to know is, will the United States be there? His moderated tone um, takes away at least some of the uh, hawkish edge that the North Koreans and the Chinese would have played up. But I also think that it is reassuring to hear him take that more temperate line but if you look at what he is saying, it is a consistent message. And that message is the U.S. is there to our allies. We are, you know, steadfast. And to our potential adversaries, you know, we are your worst enemy. If you want to take it down that path, we will. Well, it will be interesting to watch over the next uh, few days as the president completes his trip. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Again, thank you for having me. Again, uh, Dean Cheng is the Senior Research Fellow of Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk with Rupert Darwell, again, the author of Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Rupert Darwall, in his latest book, Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex, he traces the alarming origins of the green agenda and reveals how environmental scares have been deployed by our global rivals as a political instrument to contest American power around the world. He draws on extensive historical and policy analysis. Uh, green Tyranny exposes the environmental propaganda scares of the last century and there have been many. Swedes' use of um, environmental alarmism to secretly aid Soviet Russia and how Germany's alternative energy obsession descended directly from Nazi regime. Well, this timely and provocative book offers a lucid history of environmental alarmism and failed policies that explain how scientific consensus, in quotes, is manufactured and abused by politicians with duplicitive motives and totalitarian 
tendencies. Rupert Darwall is a strategy consultant and policy analyst. He has written extensively for publications on both sides of the Atlantic, including the Wall Street Journal, National Review, the Daily Telegraph, and the Spectator. He is the author of the widely praised The Age of Global Warming, a history in 2013. And today we're talking about his latest book, Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. Thank you so much for joining us. Thrilled to be joining you, Georgine. There is so much in this book that I've, I've really struggled with how we can provide enough information to let our listeners know how important it is to understand the history, not only on this side of the pond, uh, but the European history of this subject as well. In the preface of the book, um, you point out that uh, this book grew out of a conversation you had with a reader of your earlier work, The Age of Global Warming, a history published in 2013. This is someone with professional knowledge suggesting that you missed out on the developments in continental Europe, Sweden, and Germany in your earlier work, and this is sort of an answer to that uh, that omission. That's right, Georgine. The way I describe it is that this is like uh, walking up the dark side of the mountain. You get to the same summit. The view from the summit might be the same, but this takes you up, as I say, the dark side. And it particularly focuses on Sweden and Germany. And there's a tendency, if I may say so, in, in America to think that if it didn't happen first in America, it, didn't really, it doesn't really matter. But bear in mind that the Swedish prime minister, the leader of Sweden, Olaf Palmer, was talking about climate change and global warming in 1974. That's when Al Gore was still at law school. So this thing has been going on much, much it was going on well before um, Americans really uh, it, it burst onto the American political scene. And there are reasons for that, that uh, as I describe in the book, uh, Sweden wanted to have a massive new civil nuclear power program, and they wanted to scare um, Swedish voters who weren't really keen on nuclear power, and they said they played the, they, they played the coal card. They said if you don't have nuclear, you're going to have coal-fired power stations, and the acid rain is going to destroy the forests, and the The lakes are going to become like sulfuric acid. And then the next thing they did was global warming. It's absolutely fascinating when you consider what was happening here in the United States. We were talking about the big freeze that was coming. Then, uh, you know, we've sort of vacillated between uh, disasters that were certain to come and settled finally on uh, climate change because global warming wasn't really working. It, It puts things into context when you look at the origins in the 70s, as you pointed out, in both Sweden and and Germany. Um, you uh, write that both uh, uh, began in Sweden as part of a war with, on coal. It meant to bolster support for nuclear power. However, nuclear power seems to have fallen off the radar as the solution to what they told us was ultimately the problem. That's absolutely correct, Georgine. And the hinge of the story turns on what happened in Germany. Yes, it's right that Sweden started both the acid rain scare, and people tend to forget because they're not taught, if they ever knew, that actually the science underpinning, the consensus science underpinning acid rain turned out to be wrong. So we have here documented proof that consensus science can be 100% wrong. But what happened was that once Sweden had got global warming onto the international agenda, what then changed was the rise of the Greens in Germany. And the, the, the Greens are, in a way, the inheritors of a lot of the ecological thinking, the green thinking that was prevalent in Nazi Germany um, up until 1945, particularly before the Second World War. And it's again, this is 
we're talking about this is the darkest chapter in Europe's history, and it happens to be the case that the Nazis were Europe's first Greens. And there is a very strong strain of anti-nuclear power and anti-nuclear physics even in, in, in German culture. And it's all going back to the soil and natural and renewables and that sort of thing. So you even have Hitler talking about wind power in the 1930s and six weeks after invading the Soviet Union. He was saying wind power is the future. Well, you could say at least that was the one thing he actually got right. But it's the rise of the Greens in Germany transformed European politics and ultimately transformed the whole energy question. Um, and it's something that happened over decades. The, the Greens, Green Party was only founded in 1980. So in two or three decades, they have transformed, they have greened European politics. Well, let me ask the, the question before I move on to other things. To what end? Is this really about saving the environment from catas- the catastrophic impact of human um, involvement? Or is there an end beyond that that, that may not be uh, understood? You put your finger on it. Global warming is a pretext yes. for a pre- pre-existing ideological green agenda. And you can see that very simply, because if you're really, really concerned about uh, carbon dioxide emissions, you do not close down your nuclear power stations as the German Greens uh, are doing. That's one of the things. They are completely anti-nuclear. They've always been anti-nuclear. They came into being um, as a result of the anti-nuclear protests in in West Germany in the 1970s and the 1980s. And so if if you're really concerned about global warming, you you don't close down nuclear power stations, you extend their life. And you can see that also in California and, and New York, where both states are closing down their nuclear power stations. This is a pretext for a radical green agenda. And ditto with, with, with fracking. The United States has cut its carbon dioxide emissions from, from power stations massively, and that is because of fracking. Yet, if, if you look at continental Europe, fracking is banned. What is, what's going on here? This is it's not really about global warming. They're using global warming as a as a lever for other ends. You write, for Europe's green radicals, control of energy policy is a means toward an end. Global warming thus poses a question about the nature and purpose of the state, whether its role is to affect a radical transformation of society or whether its principal task is to uh, protect freedom. And that's a major question that is still up for uh, up for debate. Um, as as we determine what course this and other nations are going to take with regard to um, global warming. Yes, I think this this is fundamentally a question of freedom, and it is no accident mm-hmm. that the Western nation that has been most opposed to the international treaties and agreements and uh, on on global warming, and in fact the U.S. is unique in in rejecting these these agree uh, uh, con- um, uh, caps on on targets and timetables to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. It's actually rejected those three times now. The only Western nation to have done that. And the reason is very straightforward, because freedom is so inculcated in American culture and in American democracy, unlike, uh, it has to be said, Western Europe. And, And that is why... The, 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 green agenda, the green agenda needs the suppression of freedom. It needs the suppression of the United States Constitution to, to do what it wants to do, to transform society. And so that's why it's such a huge issue in the, in the United States, where it really isn't anywhere else in the same way. And there have been willing accomplices in the White House. Um, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, comes to mind. You've seen the, the, the presidents vacillate, but the 
Uh, the separation of powers, the requirement that the Senate uh, provide advice and consent has prevented this movement from being as effective here. Uh, and in fact, the, the Paris Climate Agreement, for example, was, uh, as you point out, the entire architecture had been designed to circumvent the Constitution's requirement for that uh, advice and consent required by the Senate. That's absolutely right. And I think that is the, the big, I think that is the biggest thing about uh, November a year ago, that had um, Hillary Clinton uh, won the election and if she were in the White House, uh, the United States would still be a party of the Paris Agreement. The Clean Power Plan would still be there, and they're both designed to circumvent uh, con- the Congress, as you as you say. The Par- the Paris Agreement um, d- didn't go to the Senate for for approval, even though uh, previous pres- presidents have said any any deal under the uh, UN Climate Framework uh, Convention on Climate Change would require Senate approval. They ditched that requirement. Similarly, the Clean Power Plan, this isn't a bill that went through Congress, like the Affordable Care Act or the cap-and-trade legislation at the beginning of the 90s on sulfur dioxide emissions. It was done through the EPA, and it was done through completely discredited discreditable soon settled policy that the EPA and NGOs like Greenpeace and so forth engaged in to circumvent Congress. And I think if, if both those had stood, it would be a very, very serious undermining of the Constitution of, uh, of, of America. We're talking with Rupert Darwell. He's the author of Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Rupert Darwell, his latest book, Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex, a must read to understand in its broader context the uh, the war that we're currently in on uh, over climate change. Uh, and the the role that uh, the United States ought to play in some of these consensus that uh, have been signed upon by other nations. Let's talk about this notion of scientific consensus. We're often told that because that the scientists, the majority of scientists, agree on a particular uh, theory, particularly on on climate change, that that essentially settles the issue. We're seeing some differences here under the EPA that is now insisting on scientists who hold differing views on the subject. But this uh, this notion that there is a consensus is designed it seems to me, uh, to silence uh, opposition. Is there a consensus, and what does that mean exactly? Well, consensus is the concept of consensus is really important for action, that if for collective action, that everyone needs to agree, there needs to be agreement to act. You don't need consensus on thinking. You don't need to have the same views. You don't need to think the same views. So as you, as you say, it, it inevitably, this search for consensus inevitably involves the suppression of, of dissent, disagreement, and debate. And what, the book, what, what I do in the book is show that on two prior occasions, the scientific consensus underpinning two environmental scares turned out to be wrong. The first one we've already mentioned, which was acid rain. And the idea was that what came out of the smokestacks of, uh, of power stations uh, led to the rain becoming more acidic and destroying forests and, and lakes and so forth. 
That science turned out to be wrong, despite what the National Academy said, that actually the science on this is actually stronger than it is for global warming and climate change. That consensus turned out to be wrong. And what I show in the book is that when this was found out to be the case, the EPA under the first uh, President Bush suppressed that report. They went ahead with cap and trade in the knowledge that actually the science was uh, was wrong. Uh, in my view, that is, a, that is a scientific and political scandal of the first order. The second uh, example that I have in the book is that the nuclear winter, if you remember in the mid-1980s, mm-hmm. when... Um, as a result of the Soviets putting in SS-20s into, into, into Europe, and the West responded, uh, President Reagan responded with putting Pershings and cruise missiles into Western Europe. And there was this great thing, well, if there's a nuclear uh, exchange, it will lead to a nuclear winter and basically the extinction of, of, of human society. That consensus as well turned out to be wrong. And it's even worse than what I said with acid rain, because actually the the nuclear winter scare was invented by the KGB, and it was planted in Stockholm, and then it was taken up by American environmental organizations and American multi-billion foundations. This was a KGB ruse to undermine the Reagan administration's arms build-up. And if the scientists had their way, the Cold War would have ended differently. So these people have actually got... charge sheet is very very serious charges of malpractice and yet we still you know the world is saying well that the scientists are right we must listen to what they say now is it understood by the politicians who parrot their uh, scientific advisors are they aware of uh, the the dubious nature of the consensus that they often cite um, is this uh, is this a similar to the uh, kind of billionaire funded climate industrial complex that we've seen uh, in other um, areas as well with regard to the environment? I think uh, a lot of politicians, particularly left-of-center politicians, uh, tend to subscribe to this because what, what they, they feel that capitalism, they don't really like capitalism. There must be something wrong with capitalism. But the fact is that capitalism beats socialism, as we saw with the, the collapse of communism at the, 19, at the end of the 1980s. But so, so now they're saying, well, capitalism might be quite good economics, but it's terrible for the environment. So they, you know, they're looking for reasons why capitalism will destroy the planet and so forth. So I think that's very much the kind of, if you like, the politicians of the Bernie Sanders of this world. Someone like Hillary Clinton, who knows what Hillary Clinton really thinks? Does she know what she really believes anymore? But I think there's, I think there are some politicians who are privately skeptical, but take the view that there is no way I'm going to take on this massive, powerful climate industrial complex. They are incredibly well-funded. I mean, staggeringly well-funded. Not only do they have the billionaire foundations, they also have Silicon Valley. You look at Google, Apple, um, Silicon Valley is, is support, supports this very hard. Then you've got the, all the NGOs, and they can be quite vicious. So you think, wow, the politics of this, why, why should I take on these people even if I think they're wrong? I'm going to just go along with it. It's the easy way out. And I think a lot of perhaps uh, Republican politicians would be in that camp. Let me ask you about Al Gore. He was at one time considered a a, uh, fit apologist for the uh, climate industrial complex. He's fallen a bit out of favor. He's he's not been a very good spokesman. Um, But uh, does he represent this uh, industrial complex or at least did he? Um, And where would you put him in terms of an influencer uh, in in terms of uh, uh, public policy in this area? 
Well, one of the things I discovered actually writing the first book, which you referred to the age of global warming, was how a lot of people on the other side actually personally dislike Al Gore. It's quite interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't know the man, but he, he's not... He's not like the revered figure that he, he is. On the inside, he's not the revered figure that he appears to be on the outside. But what I can tell you at every, every big climate conference, um, like Paris, um, uh, Marrakesh, Al Gore will do a great big, he'll do his, his great big spiel with his slides and so forth, and the hall will be packed and they clap and cheer him. So to them, he, to, to a lot of them, he, 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 he represents something. For me, the most reprehensible uh, aspect of Al Gore was when he, he, he appeared with those six state attorney generals on the Exxon New. Um, it was, uh, I think, the end of, towards the end of last year when they were going, going after Exxon Mobil and saying Exxon knew the truth about global warming and basically the suppression of a, a company's first amendment amendment rights and i thought that you know, that that to me crossed a very serious boundary and he should he he completely dishonorable and discredited thing for him to have done we're hearing more in this country about the criminalization of skeptics um, are we seeing that worldwide and what do you say to those who are skeptical about uh, what is referred to as the consensus that is essentially indisputable at this point is there hope that uh, another message is, is going to be heard by the prevailing voices in media, public policymakers, and so on? Well, the, the, the penultimate chapter of the book is entitled The Spiral of Silence, and it describes a process that was actually written about by a, a very prominent West German pollster, the most prominent one in the post-war period. And she, called, she, she described a mechanism whereby when people stop hearing, they respond to what other people think and what, what they're hearing in the media. And if their views become less and less popular, they, they begin not to voice those views. And those views get sort of pushed to the margins of society. And they, they're no longer expressed. And in fact, they become mute. So what can we do about this? Well, I tell you, the most important thing that people indeed like you can do, Georgie, is talk about it, to break the spiral of silence, to, to, to give people the arguments on both sides so, so they can hear there are, there are an alternative views, there are opposing views, they are legitimate views, they're rational views. And that is the single most important thing that can be done. And it's by breaking the, the spiral of silence that we can, that we can kind of, the, the climate industrial complex can eventually be de defeated. Well, in one way, I think we can begin that conversation is by encouraging our readers to pick up green tyranny, exposing the totalitarian roots of the climate industrial complex. It seems to me this is a very important book because it puts in a much broader context the issues that we are facing here in this country, but that have uh, begun and have been faced uh, in Europe for a much longer period of time. Rupert Darwell, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time and the work that you've done in green tyranny. Thank you very much, Georgine. Bye-bye. Again, the book is published by Encounter. It is a must-read if you want to have a better understanding of the totalitarian roots, as the title of the book suggests, of the climate industrial complex. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show.
Well, world-famous evangelist Billy Graham is celebrating his 99th birthday today, which means tomorrow is really today, the start of his 100th year. His son, Franklin Graham, announced that the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association will mark the, with major highlights of his life throughout the next year. In fact, you can go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, and they put together a video featuring a, a number of uh, very famous people talking about the life and legacy of evangelist Billy Graham. Well, November 7th will be a big milestone for my father as he turns 99 and enters his 100th year. As a family, we are just so very grateful that he's still with us. His mind is good, but his uh, he's quieter these days. He can't see or hear well, but his health is stable. That's what Franklin Graham said on Wednesday of last week. On his birthday, some family will be with him and we'll give him his uh, favorite cake. Now catch this, a lemon cake with lard icing. Wow, that's a that's a 99-year-old preference, I guess. He loves those cakes, but it has to have the lard icing, uh, he went on to say. At the Billy Graham Library, they're going to have a special celebration uh, today, and this year is also the 10th anniversary of the opening of the library there. We'll have birthday cake for everyone who comes by. Well, Franklin Graham explained that as his father enters his 100th year, uh, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association will be marking the major moments from his eight decades of ministry. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is moving strong into the future, but it's also important to celebrate the past. So each month they're going to focus on a particular decade and highlight significant things like his 16-week evangelistic crusade in New York City, his impact on worldwide evangelism and personal testimonies of people whose lives were forever changed at one of uh, his father's crusades. During this next year, we'll have a special content on BillyGraham.org, their website, and in the Decision magazine, so be sure to check those out. Uh, Franklin Graham goes on to say, my father always wants the focus to be on the Lord Jesus Christ and not on him, so we will point to the amazing ways God has uh, worked in lives around the world through the ministry of Billy Graham. The evangelist noted that his uh, father is grateful for all the prayers and birthday wishes that he has been receiving. Franklin Graham, who is president of both the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and Samaritan's Purse, has been sharing updates and uh, reflections about the his 98-year-old father on Facebook as well. In a post in October, he revealed that his father has one Bible verse in particular that he still has display, displayed rather in large letters around his house. Still today, my father, Billy Graham, has a Bible verse pinned up on the, on the wall in his bedroom, printed in very large letters. In fact, it's in the dining room, the bathroom, and several other spots around the house. Back before his 95th birthday, he was uh, working on a sermon based on this... Um, Uh, key scripture. It was his passion to memorize it, to saturate his heart and mind with it. He made it his life verse, he said at the time. He revealed that the verse is Galatians 6.14, which reads, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Hmm, That sounds just like Billy Graham, does it not? Well, again, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association announced its partnership with Sirius XM for the launch of the Billy Graham Channel. It's a limited-run channel. It's headlined by the world-renowned Christian evangelist. The Billy Graham Channel uh, debuted yesterday on the 6th at 12 a.m. Eastern Time through Friday, November the 17th on Channel 145 on satellite and uh, via streaming, launching in celebration of the uh, preacher's 99th birthday. Sirius listeners nationwide will have access to his timeless, inspired 
inspiring message, a messages rather, from his seven decades of ministry. On November 7th, they celebrate his birthday, and we, along with Serious Thought, a channel featuring some of Mr. Graham's most memorable messages, would be a fitting way to mark the occasion. Uh, this is Jim Kirkland, Executive Director of Audio Media at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Uh, he goes on to say that uh, Mr. Graham's most memorable messages would be a fitting way to mark the occasion. The Billy Graham Channel is the kind of gift Mr. Uh, Graham would greatly appreciate. It helps point others to the hope found in Jesus Christ. Billy Graham has inspired millions of Americans with his uplifting messages of hope, courage, love, and forgiveness. Dave Gorib, Vice President and General Manager of Talk Programming at Sirius XM. We are honored to be part of Billy Graham's 99th birthday celebration by bringing this limited uh, engagement channel to Sirius XM listeners coast to coast. So you can check that out. It began yesterday and will run through uh, about uh, a week. Also, Zondervan Publishing has announced plans to release A Prophet with Honor, the Billy Graham story by William Martin in March of next year. Uh, uh, Billy Graham himself requested Martin for the project and granted him unprecedented access to the Billy Graham archives and team members lending their work, the uh, this work, the authenticity and transparency of no other. As I have written in this book, I have constantly examined what I have said in an effort to make sure that I was neither shading the truth in Graham's or uh, his associates' uh, favor out of gratitude for their helpfulness, nor taking an inappropriately negative slant as a way of emphasizing that I had not uh, been taken in by slick manipulation, Martin writes. But since Billy Graham and his associates, like all humankind, have weaknesses, I determined not to gloss those over. I have tried to be scrupulously fair, the author says, not only because I do not wish to taint uh, the taint of unfairness to mar the most notable scholarly enterprise in which I have engaged to date, but also because I regard fairness as a cardinal virtue. He continues, I do not imagine, of course, that my judgment is flawless, but the account and the assessments I have rendered have been given with great care. That is expected to be out in March of um, uh, next year. Again, Zondervan publishing A Prophet with Honor, the Billy Graham story, and it is he's been given unprecedented access to uh, Billy Graham's memoirs and access to his associates and putting that book together. Well, taking a look at uh, what's coming up tomorrow, and for that matter, the remainder of the week, tomorrow being Wednesday, we're going to talk with Lori Cano. She's the author of How He Loves Us, Revealing the Affections of God. Some of us have the uh, the notion that God is an angry old man looking down um, uh, on us from his vantage point on high. We're going to talk about how the love of God is expressed in his word and the affections uh, are revealed in her book as well. On Thursday, we're going to talk with uh, Stephen Mansfield, author of Choosing Donald Trump, God, Anger, Hope, and Why Christian Conservatives Supported Him. Of course, not all Christian conservatives did, but many did and uh, can be credited with uh, p- uh, helping to place him in the White House. We're going to find out what Stephen Mansfield uh, discovered in his search for the reasons why. There's some who I believe, well, it's obvious why. Others would suggest why on earth. We'll find out and sort through uh, uh, what is known about the support that evangelical Christians gave to President Trump. So that's coming up later this week. Also on Friday, we're going to lighten things up just a bit and 
look forward to uh, to doing that. For those of you who join us late in the program, I want to uh, let you know that we had an opportunity to speak with uh, Rupert Darwell, Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. The book is published by Encounter. I consider it to be one of the more important books on the environment, and as he put it, the Climate Industrial Complex uh, would highly recommend the book, but you can also listen to the interview on our podcast at uh, kpdq.com. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.